Welcome to Dr. Green Speaks. What's up, family? You know who I be. It's the kid again, Dr. Green. Yeah, you heard it. Listen. Bridging the gap between scholars. Read more books than the curriculum profile. Doctors, athletes, and pop culture influencers. <laughs> Major show alert. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, this is it. And now, Dr. Green Speaks. Bring them out. What's up, family? You know who it is. Kid again, Dr. Green. Yep, listen, back here on Dr. Green Speaks today, I have the opportunity to share time with none other than the Dr. Avery August, who happens to be a professor of microbiology and immunology. Given the time that we're in right now, dealing with COVID, this is the kind of individual that you should be reaching out to to get the real information, the facts, the peer-reviewed research. He's an expert that studies inflammation, lung inflammation specifically, and disease. It is my pleasure to introduce none other than my man's in them, Dr. Avery August. How are you doing today, family? I'm doing well, Dr. Green. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I mean, this is um, an honor and a privilege. It's, I, I'm very excited about getting into this conversation about you, your work, um, your achievements. I mean, I think this is um, one of my favorite um, opportunities because you're in a, a discipline that I know absolutely nothing about. So I'm looking forward to to learning and to sharing all of the wonderful things that that you are involved in. So why don't you tell me um, where did where did it start? Where is your story start? Where did I start? Uh, it you know it's interesting. I was. Um... You know, so I, I was born in Belize, uh, in Central America, and uh, my 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 mother moved here to the U.S. Um, when I was very young, and we came after um, to to Los Angeles. So spent some time in Los Angeles. Did did a, a year of high school there, community college, a um, couple of years of community college. Transferred to Cal State LA, uh, big up Cal State LA, and. Was kind of struggling, you know, as 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 you do. Um, took a, a class, um, and one of my professors, Professor um, Costello Brown, still remember. Mm -hmm. I was taking his class, and he said, "What do you want to do with your life?" And and you know, at the time, my major was medical technology, and and I was, um, you know, it's it's the type of job where you you do the the blood tests in the hospital and and, and stuff like that. And he says, "Do you want to do urine analysis for the rest of your life?" And uh, and I thought about it. I was like, oh, that's a, I, I never thought about it that way. So he's like, come on, let me show you what research is like. So he introduced me to research, and I never looked back. Never looked back because I really, you know, fell in love with just discovery. Wow, no, that's amazing because um, a lot of young people that are are going into college um, operate under the misnomer that they have to know exactly what it is that they're going to do for their, you know, for the rest of their life. And, and some of them assume that that major that they picked when they started is what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. Um, how was that shift for you to go from this idea of, you know, this is what I might do to finding that thing that, that, that really motivated you and inspired you? Mm, yeah, no, that was definitely a journey for me because I started out as a biology major. And, you know, I started as a biology major because I thought, okay, I'm going to go to medical school. That's what biology majors do. I like biology. But then I didn't really like hospitals. I mean, not, not in that way, right? I mean, you know, I really respect, <laughs> you know. Right. It, it, but for me, it was just something that I, you know, realized 
didn't want to spend the rest of my life there. And so was, that's when I was struggling. And so I changed to microbiology. Um, and then, you know, I thought, well, how can I get a job with a, with a degree in microbiology? So, and then, so then I changed to medical technology because I figured, okay, I can get a job. I can point to a job there. But then that's when, you know, Dr. Brown said to me, and I really respect it. We've chatted about this a number of times over the years. You know, what do you want to do? And, and that's when, you know, that's when it clicked, right? Because that's when I really saw that I, that I could do this and I really enjoyed it. And he introduced me to this whole world of what you could do. You could get a PhD, you could do all this stuff. And I didn't know all that before. So it's, you know, if you don't know, you don't know what you don't know, right? And right. it's people like Dr. Brown who can start to open those doors for you. Well, so can you tell me a little bit about what you do now? So what, what do I do now in research? Yes. So what I so I'm I'm an immunologist. What that means is I study how the immune system works. And a lot of people have been talking about vaccines, you know, COVID. So that's that's right up my alley. As a matter of fact, my lab, some some of the work that we do in my lab, we're we're working with some of my colleagues on trying to understand how the virus triggers the immune system and you know, thinking about how it causes disease. Um, I study lung inflammation. Everybody hears about inflammation. So when you get when you get a flu, when you get infected with you know, SARS-CoV-2, that causes lung inflammation. When you have asthma, COPD, all of those things cause lung inflammation. It's basically the same process. And we're trying to understand how does the immune system know to turn on this process of inflammation? And then how does it know to turn it off? Because when you clear the virus, if you have flu, you clear the virus. If you have SARS-CoV-2, you clear the virus. It, that's the immune system turning on and turning off. So we're trying to understand how the immune system turns on and then how to turn it off so that we can try to manipulate it, you know, when we want. So that that's sort of what we do in the lab. So how so so the ability to turn it on and turn it off um, at will, so to speak, or, or 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 to be able to control that, how is that beneficial? And what's so the application been, yeah. of that? That's beneficial because you know if when when you get infected, I'm going to use SARS, the COVID two, just because you know that's what we've been talking about. But there, are, you know, it's the same process. When you get infected with, with this virus, the immune system needs to clear the virus, right? So it needs to sort of send the alarm, turn on inflammation, and inflammation is what drives that. But that inflammation can damage the lung. It's a you know, similar process as when you have asthma. The inflammation damaged the lung. COPD damaged the lung. So you want to be able to control that. You don't want it to, turn, to be too high, but just enough so you clear the virus. So if you're able to control that, you can say, turn it on just this amount clear the virus, and then turn it off, right? And then there are times when you have inflammation. If you have asthma, you have COPD, you have inflammation that you don't want. So you want to be able to shut that down, right? Um, so you, you, know, you want to be able to control that in a way such that you can control the levels, at, you know, depending on the type of disease, depending on, on the situation. Sometimes inflammation is good. You, know, you need the inflammation to clear the virus. Sometimes it's bad. You need to turn it off or you need to sort of block, you know, the, the symptoms that you have of asthma or COPD. So, you know, having a really good understanding of that, it's like learning the rules of the, of the road, right? You know, if you, if you cross the road over here, you're going to run into traffic. So if you understand it, you can control your driving, right? Or, or driving a car or something like the gas, the brake, you got to be able to control that. So, so that's the thing that we try to understand. Wow, that's amazing. And that's so very important. So how did... I would just want to ask you a question. So I think one of the things that I've, that I've talked about quite a bit is um, what I refer to as anti-intellectualism, right? So we live in a day where 
everybody's on the internet, right? Everybody has an opinion, right? Everybody's an expert on a get like what I Googled it and um, I found out, right? So can you tell me, have you felt any frustration as it relates to the, the flow of information or misinformation on the internet? Um, because you are one of those experts that people should be talking to directly or listening to, but you know, they're, they're waiting and listening or, or paying attention to the newest pop star to tell them what they should believe or not believe. Have you, is that a challenge for you when you see kind of the information that's out there and the way that discussions are being had? Oh man, you're, you're, uh, you're touching a nerve here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, the, you know, the joke is, you know, everybody's a virologist or everybody's immunologist on the internet, right? You know, everybody's doing their research. Uh, and I'm saying, unless you have a lab and you have people and you understand what this means, you're not doing research. You're just reading what's on the internet and not everything on the internet is, you know, is true. Um, right. So definitely, you know, it's one of those things, and, and particularly for, you know, parts of the black community, right? I mean, you know, we, we need to be able to trust the people who have authority and are, are speaking. And there's a history um, that's there. Right. So, you know, it's not that I, I you know, I, I'm not arguing against that, but we need to be able to understand that, that there, are, there are experts who have expertise, who know what they're talking, who do the research, you know, people like myself and others who are able to, to speak authoritatively on these, on these issues. And not everything you see on the internet, not everyone who speaks on this issue uh, is able to tell you the difference between a T cell and, and a virus. Um, and so if they're talking about, you know, vaccines and they don't have that expertise, then I don't know if I trust them. You know, just like, I'm not going to call on any particular person, but you know, I'm, not, <laughs> right. I'm not in your kitchen telling you how to cook. Right. So. <laughs> right. 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 No, that's it. That, that, because that's very frustrating because like you said, there is a history in our community as it relates to medical treatment um, and medical uh, mistreatment. Right. So so there is that justifiable questioning, so to speak. But I think there it's just gotten to the point where everybody is talking authoritatively about this subject matter. And one of the things that I bring, it's a, it's a, I guess a cartoon or something where I think it was called the Incredibles where the bad guy was his, his, his objective was to make everybody a superhero, right? To give, and so, and so if everybody's a superhero, then nobody would be right. And by the same token, if, if everyone is purported to be an expert, like if everybody takes that positionality, well, I know, then no one knows because there are so many talking heads that we get lost in the shuffle and say, well, this person said that and this person said the other. So so having people like you that are out there, that are in the trenches, that are doing doing the work, um, I think we have to do a better job of making sure that your voices are heard above the noise so that we'll have the kind of information that will help us to make educated decisions. Um, so you are at Cornell, the, the vice provost of academic affairs. How is it being as, as a person of color, right? Um, in a position of a, a very prestigious historically white, um, institution. Yeah, no, yeah. this, this is interesting. And, you know, I, I, I have, um, you know, students come to me, you know, on the side, you know, show up at my office and trying to understand, you know, the institution, trying to understand, you know, the, 
these are really complex institutions and you know cultures and and one of the things that i always think about is you know can i be in the room where decisions are made where you know there's a voice that comes from our community um and, you know that's part of what has driven me as, as i've thought about you know what am i going to do next is are there places that i can be where i can start to, to think about changing some of the structures some of the processes to make this more transparent so that more people can be successful and you know this this sort of position that i have is it's kind of vague you know vice provost for academic affairs you know it's sort of you know academic affairs right it's an academic institution but you know one of the one of the things about that is that it allows me to be able to collaborate with with different parts of the university in understanding um you know what we do as a university so you know the process of how do we hire who do we hire uh, the faculty uh, how do we ensure that those faculty uh, are able to provide uh the support for the students that we have at our institution as our as, as cornell gets you know our undergraduate population gets more and more diverse you know we don't have the same diversity among our faculty so that's one of the things that i think about and try to do um and try to ensure that we have a more diverse faculty who can teach our students so you know there's a there's a, a wide range of things that i that i do in my position but the, the big one that i think about is can i be in those rooms where i can at least have a voice in some of those decisions that are being made right now that's so do you feel a lot of pressure um being in those rooms because um a lot of the the, the black intellectuals and practitioners and, and and experts tend to be in rooms that they are the one of one and so they end up not just being an expert in a particular area or in their particular area of expertise. They are, by default, a representative of so much more. Um, do you feel that um, when you enter these spaces um, um, and are asked these questions? Absolutely. I mean, I think, in, and you just described the position that that some of us are in. You know, we. You know, on the one hand, I, I'm a member of that community. I, I, you know, we have, you know, we hang out together, you know, we're, we're, we're doing lunch. We're, we're sort of, I'm there as, a, as an individual, as a black male. Um, but then I show up in those rooms and I have to say, look, you know, I'm an N of one. You know, I, I don't, you know, I am not the full diversity of the experience that you're asking. I can tell you what my, you know, I try to consult my, my colleagues and try to say, you know, what are you thinking? You know, because mm -hmm. I, I don't have every experience that, that my black colleagues have on the campus. Mm -hmm. But it is quite a bit of pressure because, you know, you know, sort of you see the heads look at you, right? And you're like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> like, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> so so uh, tell me yeah, about definitely pressure. Oh, my apologies. So so tell me a little bit about your journey, right? So you're at, you you're you're in your undergrad program, right? Tell me about the, the 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 trajectory from undergrad to where you are now academically. So undergrad, you know, I told you the story about Dr. Brown, and the reason I keep shouting him out because he, you know, as I said, he was pivotal. Um, and I ended up not doing research with him. He introduced me to one of his colleagues, uh, Dr. Phoebe D. And so I did uh, research with her in in her chemistry lab. Um, so I did a, a couple of years of research in chemistry. She really introduced uh, introduced me to the concept of going to grad school, um, and I decided I wanted to do immunology because I'd taken a course as part of my undergraduate degree in immunology, and I was just fascinated with the immune system. Lots of parallels with the immune system and life. You know, the immune system exists 
in a, in a state where it can recognize anything before you even come in contact with it. And mm -hmm. part of that state is because of the diversity of the immune system, the representation of all different types of immune cells that pre-exist and are ready to go, um, just waiting until it recognizes something. And so I really appreciated that. So I, I finished my degree. I spent a, a year um, in, at Cal State LA doing a master's degree in biochemistry uh, while I was applying to grad school and, you know, thinking about different grad schools, finally ended up um, being accepted at uh, Cornell's grad school in New York City, Graduate School of Medical Sciences. And, and I decided to go to, to, to grad school there. Um, so I moved to New York City from, from uh, California and, um, you know, spent uh, five years in grad school there. Uh, you know, I won't say it was easy. You know, getting a PhD is, is, is hard. Um, you know, there were times when, when I really, you know, didn't feel like staying. I wanted to leave. But I, I always remembered, you know, my mother came here and she made some sacrifices to, to be able to have us um, be able to have access to the types of educational systems we have here. And so that kept me going. And after I finished uh, my, my PhD, you know, I started, you know, uh, thinking about what next, um, decided to do a postdoc, um, which is this two or three year period after you do your PhD at Rockefeller University in New York City. I know you're, okay. I know you're a Brooklyn man, you know, you know, Brooklyn. Side. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I always I always went over to, you know, just as an aside, I always went over to 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 Brooklyn to get my uh, my foods. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, after I finished my PhD, I, I, I went to Penn State um, because it was it was an interesting opportunity. I really enjoy working with students, really enjoy being in the classroom, but also doing research. And so that the offer that that they made to me as an assistant professor gave me the opportunity to do both of that. Um, and so that's when I started my academic journey in, in, in real life. In between, you know, there were lots of opportunities that I well, lots of times when I thought, OK, I'm not sure if I want to do this. Fortunately, nobody nobody else gave me a job, so <laughs> I try to be a high school teacher. I try to you know do other things, but didn't get a job, so I ended up you know being an academic. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great default. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it, it's been good. I have to say it's been good, so I'm not I'm not I'm not upset. <laughs> okay, I want to shout out uh, a person very dear to me, Dr. Julianne Malveaux who is the new uh, head of the College of Ethnic Studies at Cal State Los Angeles. So she's there um, in your town um, yes. trying to make a difference. So I wanted to just shout her out. Um, so here's here's what, I, what I'd like to kind of get to. Um, a lot of people, a lot of young people, want to go to Cornell, right? It's it's one of those institutions that that people tout as the top in the you know in the world. What advice would you give undergrads that maybe they're in their, I don't know, they're in their junior year, right, of high school or this, what does it take to become uh, a Cornell student? Oof. Yeah, that's a Loaded. That's, that's a yeah. It's a definitely loaded. I mean, I, I'll say the the undergrads here. I mean, fantastic students here, and you know, even even you know, when I was at Penn State, really great students. Um, one of the one of the I'm gonna preface what I'm saying before I answer your question with this because I it, it, it's it's sometimes a struggle for students. Um, all the students at at Cornell, all the undergrad students at Cornell, 
were at the top of their class in whatever high school they were in. And then they come here and everybody was at the top of the class. And now they're just one of, you know, whatever number of students. <laughs> well, and that can, be, that can be a struggle, right? And so, so I, I, and when I talk to students, I think that's one of the things that, that, that ends up happening. So, you know, students who, Cornell has a really interesting, I'm going I'm to give some detail here because I think it's important for high school students who are interested in going to Cornell. Student, Cornell has an uh, admissions process where you apply to a particular college or a major. So many other universities, you apply to the university, you indicate your major, and then you know they make a choice. Here, each college does their own admissions. So for example, if you're interested in biology, you can get access, you, can, you apply to either the College of Agricultural Life Sciences or the College of Arts and Sciences. They both have the same degree. And you indicate that you're interested in biology. And the big thing is they want to know why Cornell is um, best for you as compared to any other university. So it's not just you apply, you know, you use the same application materials that you apply to everywhere else. You go to the website, you look at what Cornell offers, you look at the faculty, you look at the programs, and you say Cornell is place for me because I I see myself at Cornell because Cornell has this and Cornell has this population of students and Cornell has these programs. They want to know that you are interested in Cornell for what Cornell uniquely can offer. And similarly, Cornell is looking at you as an applicant to see, are you, can we see you as part of our undergraduate student body? Do we see you as someone who can benefit from what Cornell has to offer? Do you have interests that, that we see that you can carry out here. So clearly grades are important, right? So I'm not even talking about grades. You know, as I said, most of the students at Cornell are at the top of their class, but are you doing something that you can see yourself benefiting from when you go to Cornell? And, and, and how, do you, how does Cornell help you uh, reach your goal? And, and there are other majors that might be related to your major. So you can look around, you know, there's a biology and society major. If you're interested in biology, you can also do biology and society. It's a different college. So if you explore the different majors, there are ways of applying to Cornell that you can express your unique identity in, in um, improving your chances of getting it as an undergrad. Well, that's amazing. That's amazing. So it, obviously we touched on this before, but do you find that a lot of the students of color um, come to you specifically, right? Because again, you're one, right? Um, and do you find that you're that focal point of access for support or, or information? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that, that I really struggle with is being able to, to find the time, uh, frankly, to, to talk to all the students who reach out. Um, definitely, you know, students show up at my, my uh, office, uh, one in chat. Um, you know, they will say, you know, I, I heard about you because you're part of some organization or my parents told me about you. And they're looking for someone who, uh, frankly, looks like them, who's in this institution, who can sort of talk a bit about how what it feels like to be in, in that space. Um, so students reach out to me by email. They'll show up at my office. Um, and, you know, as I've done more of my administrative work, I've, I've had less time to do that. Um, and so I try to find different ways, you know, after hours or weekends where I'll, where I'll chat with students. Um, so... It's definitely, you know, one of the things that, you know, people tell you when you're in this space and you're one of a few, 
you work harder. You know, there are 24 hours in the day, right? Some of my colleagues can focus their time, but I feel I have a duty to be talking to those students when they reach out and to have those conversations. That's incredible. That's incredible. So, Dr. August, um, can you tell us about one of the challenges, and, and, and I'm sure there were many, right, that one of the challenges that you were able to overcome um, that you thought you might not overcome? Um, yeah, there, there's definitely a number <laughs> of them. <laughs> But but maybe I'll talk about the the you know the the PhD program you know I mean it, it, as I said earlier it's not easy to get a PhD I'm not going to sugarcoat that I think it's worth it I, I think you know it, it it's it's satisfying once you go through that but it's so different from when you're an undergrad or or you know any other type of educational process if you're getting a master's degree you know you know what courses you're going to take you take your courses you graduate when you're getting a PhD you have to discover new knowledge. Talk about it. You have to discover <laughs> new knowledge. And, and so that, what that means is you have to know the limits of what exists, what, what the limits of what knowledge exists, right? So there's a lot of sort of sitting in the library, reading, catching up. I and mean, you have to take these tests. I mean, you know this, Dr. Green. Pumps. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You have to take these tests and you have to get through this test. And I'll tell you, I, I, I wasn't sure I, I, I would make it. Um, you know, when you're being grilled by those professors, you, you reach the limits of your knowledge and you're like, I, I don't know anything. And you walk out of those rooms and you feel like you don't know anything. But, you know, that's part of the process of learning where the limits of knowledge is. And that's when you start to say, OK, this area is completely unknown and I have an interest and I can start to explore that. Right. But there was that period of time, two to three years into the Ph.D., man, I'll tell you, I looked, I, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> you know. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, because I so I, I had the same challenge and I think this is really important. Right. Because, you know, everyone, not everyone, a lot of people talk. Oh, I, I was going to get a Ph.D. Like it's something that you can go to Walmart and pick up off the shelf. Like I'll take a master's and a Ph.D. <laughs> and a lot of young people don't understand that uh, that thing is no joke. And, and one of the things that I think we don't discuss, and I'll just share this from a personal story because I think it's important. You have your comps, like you you, you have to pass these exams. And our, the comps I had to take were ridiculous. CUNY grad centiologists, whew. And so the, 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 the difficulty associated, first of all, with, like you said, un understand that you have to know the canon. You've got to know what's out there first before you formulate ideas about what you might want to do, right? The gap in the literature or the gap in the research. So the 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 the, the kind of commitment and, and and difficulties that that you go through, the questioning of your, like you said, the limit of your ability where you're looking and you're saying, I really don't know this, right? And 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 obviously I, I went back and did well the next time, but that was an ugly moment, you know, and, and you really question whether you're cut out to, to get that degree that they say, what, less 2% of the population have. So, um, yeah, that is, whew, yeah, yeah. And, and so I think it, it adds to the frustration of, of experts like yourself that know your area, like you've done the due diligence, you, 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 the, the blood, sweat, tears, right? Yeah. And then you got someone else saying, I think so-and-so and so-and-so, and they talk about it so authoritatively and you're looking like what did you say 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't just wake up this morning and go to Google and say, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a few lines of immunology and start to start to speak on this." <laughs> no, I love when they say, "Well, I did some research." No, no, that's not putting that, typing that little line in the Google space. That's not research. <laughs> No, that's no, that's amazing. So now there you you're the chair or part of a committee for a conference, right? Well, can we talk about that? For, yeah. For so I, I'm really I, this is this is the thing that I'm really proud of. You know, um, this is a this is a, a, a conference called Abercams. It's annual biomedical research conference for minority students. We're just changing the name to annual research conference for minority scientists because we really are all scientists. And it is the largest undergraduate research conference uh, for students. It's usually fall. It's held every fall. Um, and five, you know, over 5,000 attendees, students from all over the country. And it's the one place where if you are a student of color and you might be the only one or one of a few in your university or when you go to your disciplinary meeting, but when you show up at Abercams, everybody looks like you. And you walk into that room and it, it's like the energy is just there. People are excited to be there. People are excited to be among their own community. And, and so it's a place where, you know, we mentor students. We have, you know, people from all careers who are there to either be mentored or mentor themselves. And so it's really exciting. I really love that meeting. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so where can they get information about this, this um, conference? So it's, it's Abercams, A-B-R-A mcs.org, abracams.org, or use Google and just type in abracams and that will give you the link. Do the research. Go to Google and put in, do that deep, that deep research. Um, no, that, that's incredible. And obviously that's something you're very proud of um, because, I mean, this is this this coming together. I mean, something that that we we've done with the Black Electoral Network also to create that synergy and that opportunity to be in spaces where you're looking at people that look like you, that have some of the same experiences, challenges, insecurities, right? And and to be able to be in this place where you can really um, um, express yourself and feel at home, I think is really really important. Um, that's an incredible work that you're doing. Thank you so very much for it. Dr. August, can you also tell us about the um, its bridges to the doctorate? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so so that was a thanks for the question. That was a that was a um, a program that I I built when I was uh, on the faculty at Penn State, and you know you were asking me earlier about you know my my academic career, and you know one of the things that I've always tried to do is try to find opportunities to increase opportunities for uh, people of color, students of color, black students in particular, to get into the into STEM, get PhDs. And so when I was on the faculty at Penn State, looked around my department, saw there were, you know, I, I was it and, you know, trickle of students here and there. And so I thought, well, how can I, how can we try to get more students into, into Penn State? So I ran, went around the country and I used my own my own uh, resources to do this. You know, went to UMBC that has a fantastic program, a pipeline program for getting students into PhDs, Black students, other HBCUs, and talked to them about the type of students that were there. You know, what are the structures? What are the challenges that these students face? And one of the things that I discovered that I knew speaking to our own students at Penn State and even here at Cornell is it's so different going from undergrad to PhD. I mean, we've talked about that you know, that challenge of being in the PhD program. But in addition to that, you're going from 
you know, an HBCU that has a particular culture to a predominantly white institution that has a very different culture. So many things that are different. Um, and so that I, I thought it would be good to try to build a program that really addresses this cultural difference, this socialization difference that ended up happening to students who come from those places. So I ended up developing a, a, a really good collaboration with a couple of colleagues at, at Alcorn State in Mississippi, uh, HBCU, very similar characteristics to Penn State, land-grant institution. And so um, went out, uh, wrote a grant, and, and got some funding from the National Institute of Health to build what's called the Bridges to the Doctorate Program. And what that program did was it, we, we recruited students from, from Alcorn State uh, into a master's program at Alcorn State. So they would finish their biology degree. They would enter a master's program at, uh, at Alcorn State, but then they would spend a year at Penn State as part of that master's program. And in that year, they were able to learn about Penn State, learn about the institution, learn about the cultural and social differences so that when they got accepted to the PhD eventually at Penn State, they, you know, it wouldn't be so much of a shock. And so that program ran for about eight or 10 years, I think. Uh, even after I left, it continued until recently. And there are a number of students who went through that program that have been really successful. One of those students, I'm going to call her out, Dr. Melanie McReynolds, who's now on the faculty at Penn State, went through that Bridges program. The other students, you know, who, who graduated from the PhD program at Penn State went back to Alcorn State as faculty. Other students, you know, came to me with uh, when I moved to Cornell in my lab and ended up having positions in industry. So I'm really proud of that students because it really started with this idea of trying to increase the number of black students that we had at Penn State going around, understanding the culture, understanding what are the differences and trying to increase um, the belonging for those students when they got there. Awesome. Wow. That is amazing. That is amazing. So, Dr. August, I've seen this hashtag, right? It, it, it seems to be um, um, very, very popular, Black and STEM, right? And, and I, I'd like for you to talk about um, what it's like to be um, a black scientist or a black and STEM. Can you can you talk about that a little? Yeah, it's been interesting to see that that hashtag, you know, sort of trend over the last few years. And and um, you know, one of those things, you know, being, you know, we talked about this, you know, this being in the space where you're one of a few or one of the only. And that comes with with particular stereotypes, right? One is there's not an expectation that uh, a scientist looks like you. Um, so, you know, there was this whole thing and this is what a scientist looks like. You know, we have these people who look very different from the traditional stereotypic view of what a scientist looks like. So, and I've certainly experienced that in my career, you know, I have people showing up, um, at the lab, if they haven't done research and, and looked at what I look like on the internet, they'll show up and they'll think, you know, somebody else is me because mm -hmm. I'm sitting there, but they don't think that I'm the one, right. You know, you don't look like a scientist, um. And so, you know, there's that stereotype uh, of what a scientist looks like. There's also, frankly, you know, your own internal feelings about, you know, we talked about going through the PhD, your own internal feelings about, can you make this? Can you make it through this, you know, as a career? Because there aren't that many who, who've gone through this that, that's in a visible way uh, been, been, been doing this uh, if you look around you. So you go to meetings, you're the only one. Um, and so there's that internal feeling that you have as well about being black in a space where, you know, that's not the expectation. Um, but I also see it as, as a way to, to, to um, have access to our own community, right? I mean, we have now more and more people who, who look like me, who are, who are doing this, who are, who are being scientists, including, you know, one of the developers of the COVID vaccine, that's Akismikia Corbett. 
um, that says, you know, look, you can look like me and you can you can be a scientist. And so I think we we just one of the things I really want to do is have not not even be an issue. Right. The fact that you look at me shouldn't be a surprise that you're a scientist. Dr. Uh, Dr. August. Um, so there are some people like W.E.B. Du Bois that talks about double consciousness, the way that um, black people see themselves through the eyes of other people. And sometimes that can be very debilitating, right, and challenging because you're not only fighting or working through how you see yourself, but the stereotypes and the perceptions of who you are as a black individual. How have you been able to work through that challenge? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one of the things that I've certainly had conversations with some of my students about, you know, when you when you look at around the room and you, and you see yourself through those two lenses, those double that double conscious that you refer to, you know, the way I've tried to do it is think about who am I as a person? Um, you know, what are my interests? What is it that I want to do? And, and not try to think about how people are perceiving me or looking at me or, you know, having particular expectations. Now, it's not to say that it doesn't influence. I mean, certainly, you know, I can be in a room and say, you know, if I say this thing, this is going to come off a particular way because of what people see me as. Mm -hmm. um, and so definitely have to think about that. Um, but at the same time, I also go through this in inner conversation about, but should I say this thing regardless of who people think I am or who people perceive I am? And so there's always that that conversation that I have with myself about those things. And, and the more and more I do that, the more comfortable I get about allowing my individuality to come out, regardless of how people perceive me. But I, I can't tell you that it's always the case, right? The, the, you know, I always have to think about what that, both plus and minus, you know, I have to think about what that perception is like. It's like, you know, if you're a black man and you walk into the store, you keep your hands in your pockets so that people, you know, the, the cameras don't think you're trying to steal something, right? You're, right. you're almost self-censoring, even though you know you're not going to be doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's, all, it's a continuous struggle and it's trying to find that balance with yourself so that you feel comfortable about who you are and how you're walking through this world that's not, you know, influenced in, in such a way that you feel, you know, constricted um by where you are right that's incredible thank you thank you for sharing so one of the questions that i like to 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 put out is if you're talking to your younger self right you're here now what advice would you give your younger self i i would say don't worry about it it's gonna be okay because <laughs> there are lots of times, you know, where you're, you're like, I, I don't know, is this going to work? Am I making the right decision here? And one, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about this and, you know, students ask me, you know, how I got to do what I do and decisions and that sort of thing. And, you know, there are always these alternate universes of had I made a different decision, right? If I hadn't mm -hmm. gone to graduate school, if I hadn't right. gone to graduate school at Cornell, so many different big decisions that you make mm -hmm. that, I don't know what would have happened the other side, but I know who I am. And so, you know, in the end, I will, I would, I would tell my, my younger self that, um, you know, think about it, make the decision and then look forward because you, know, you can't go back, but you can always go forward. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Dr. August, right now, there are young black boys in Belize, in Los Angeles, in New York, um, who are facing very, very difficult challenges. If you could speak to them right now, what advice would you give them given 
you've been in those spaces that they may be in at this point. Yeah, that that's this is the thing that I think about. One of my colleagues and I, a couple of my colleagues actually and I have been have been looking at some of this issue this issue around, you know, who who gets to join us because we're we're in the academy, in the academy. And one of the challenging things we see is a dearth of black men um, as we look at the pipeline. And and I think black boys in particular face so much um, growing up in, in the society that we grow up with regards to you know what they look like and, and what people expect when they see a, a black kid. You know, we can talk about Trayvon, we can talk about others. Um, and it's a challenge um, because we're just trying to live our lives. We're just trying to do what we do. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say believe in yourself and don't think about or don't try not to let what others think about you guide what you do and the decisions that you make. Um, get as much information as you can. We don't know what we don't know. And part of the thing about my journey is that I've had other black men reach down to me, so to speak, and help me and, and, and open those doors for me and, and give me information that I didn't have. And so be open to that. Be open to people who are ahead of you, talk to people who are ahead of you, talk to people who are doing what you want to do and see how they got there. Um, these are the things that I think um, can help you. And, and there's all this noise happening around you. Uh, you know, you try to try to think about not, try not to think about that noise and try to think about what it is that you want to do. How do you get there? What, are, what can you do now to get to where you want to be? And talk to those people who can help you do that. And they will tell you about people who can help you to do that because we're all trying to make sure that more of us are in these spaces. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd just like to add to that, that um, to all of those boys from Belize to New York, there is a Dr. Avery August. There is a Dr. Maurice Green. There are so many of us that have made this journey. It is not impossible. It is actually very, very probable. If we, if you just understand that it is, it's possible, right? And that being from Brooklyn, I like to just say that, that the, the world is so much bigger than that four block radius, your hood, your neighborhood, your, your town. Um, it's possible. Um, just, just, you know, know that you are not your environment and you are not limited to your current experiences, that there are many of us that have taken that trip and we've come out on the other side okay dr avery august thank you so very much for being gracious um with your time sharing your wisdom and your experiences um this is so important for us to be able to do to show that black excellence exists and that the work that be that's being done is so important and the work that you're doing obviously is so very important to not just to our community to the world thank you so very much for your time family dr green thank you for having me um you know we're here we're always here and we will be here <laughs> awesome thank you